Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live right here on Giants.com. John Schmelk and Lance Meadow with you. Thank you so much for being with us. Hope you had a great weekend. Hope everybody in your world is safe and healthy. And we want to say thank you once again to all the folks out there on the front lines, the doctors, the nurses, the first responders, and everybody else too. You know, the postal workers, FedEx, UPS, um, people working in grocery stores, the, the, the truckers out there that are helping us still uh, kind of live our lives the best we can. Lance, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Looking forward to this week. The draft has finally arrived. Absolutely. Week of the draft. And this man was able to sketch out a few minutes for us. We thank him. We know this is uh, kind of the fruition to his 11 months worth of work. And you can find it in his draft guide, my favorite draft guide on the market. You can find it uh, by subscribing to The Athletic. We're joined by the one and only Dane Brugler. Uh, Dane, uh, another beast out on the market. Why don't you tell folks exactly where they can find your work? Well, if you're an athletic subscriber, uh, it's part of your subscription. You know, it's free to you, and it's really it's the only way to get it. Um, and so, hopefully, people check us out. Um, you can find all my work uh, at DP Brugler on Twitter, and and then of course at the Athletic. So we've uh, got a busy week here, and uh, I, I can promise you, if you're interested in the NFL draft at all, uh, you know, there's just no chance you'll be disappointed by everything you find in the draft guide, all the detail and all the, the research uh, and the analysis. So hopefully people go check it out. Yeah, if we were on video, which we're not because we're kind of stuck in our basements here, Dane, <laughs> I would be holding up the draft guide for people because I did manage to figure out how to get it printed out at Staples. I was, I was very proud of myself. So I do, I, <laughs> I do have the physical copy in front of me. And as always, it is really one of the most comprehensive draft guides on the market. Well done as always, my friend. I know you take a lot of pride in it, and you should because it, you really do a hell of a job. No, I, I appreciate that. And yeah, a, lot, a lot of work goes into it, and so yeah, I think we, we might not agree on every single player, and but I think just the research that goes into it is something that you know you'll you can find something interesting about every single player in there. Yeah, and look, we had you on at the combine, and we talked about a lot of the players, and we'll touch on some of that at the end. But I want to focus here first, Dane, on kind of what you're hearing, because you're in contact with a lot of people in front offices, scouts. Mm-hmm. You talk to people around the league. Uh, before I even ask you what you're hearing. Is it a lot different this year, given the environment, no pro days? Uh, do you sense a difference in the type of buzz that you're hearing and, and maybe whether or not front office opinions are shifting as this process has been so different this year? It has been, and it's funny because we have a lot of teams uh, trying to figure out what other teams are doing. Uh, you know, I'm talking to my buddies in the league, and they're saying, well, hey, what are you hearing about Philly? Or, you know, what are you, what are you hearing about Baltimore? You know, just try different teams are trying to figure out not only uh, you know it's not just me trying to figure out what these teams are doing, but teams are trying to figure out what other teams are doing. And you know when you have uh, the thirty visits, which is such a big part of the process that's just missing this year, that's a way to follow the breadcrumbs. You can see who's interested in who. Uh, you know, okay, the the Cowboys sent their uh, defensive backs coach to go work out this corner. Um, you know, at a pro day or at a personal work, you know, you can follow the breadcrumbs. But because the month of March basically did not happen uh, in part, as part of the NFL draft process, a lot of teams don't have those breadcrumbs, and they're just left with kind of like the rest of us, trying to, you know, make educated guesses based off of draft trends, what GMs have done in the past, you know, what teams, uh, certain teams, what, what they were trying to do in a free agency, but maybe they weren't able to get their guy. And so now they're going to look towards the draft. And so it's definitely an interesting process that's just a little different this year. Dane, on the subject of the process, 
How much do you think the decision-making by teams is going to put much more stock in saying, hey, let's just stick to what we saw on the tape during the course of the regular season, as opposed to maybe in the past you get more into that second-guessing because you see the medical recheck and you're thinking about the risk-reward management in terms of the health factors. How much, though, do you think teams are going to put that more aside and just strictly focus on the film this season? Well, the the film is always the lifeblood of any evaluation. But I do think, you know, there there is some credence to what you're saying in terms of the more time, the more detached we get from the season and the film is more time, a, a more time for you to second guess yourself and, you know, look at a 40 yard dash or look at a, a testing that maybe wasn't up to snuff and what you expected. Um, I still think the medical should be uh, paramount. Uh, you know, you, if, if someone's got a arthritic knee or degenerative shoulder or you know whatever you still have to pay attention to that and that should still matter but the testing information while i I still think is important and helps you know provide context to just what type of athlete uh, each one of these guys are maybe you're going to lean a little bit more on the tape and what you saw and you know focus more on the on-field ability more so than just what a player is able to do in in a workout at the combine or, or elsewhere so yeah, it's it's it'll be interesting to see how different teams attack it. Are we going to see teams be more aggressive? Are we going to see teams maybe try to add some draft picks for next year? Uh, it it should be interesting to see how, how different teams play it. I don't think there's going to be a consensus. Each team's going to do it a certain way. I think each team is going to have their own different philosophy with to how to attack this draft in particular. Yeah, and Dane, I think one other factor here is the new CBA, and without getting into names and details on individual players, there are some reports that are flowing out there about, you know, what the combine guys take tests, and some guys maybe did not pass those tests. We're talking about either performance enhancing or, you know, recreational drug stuff. And are teams a little less leery of things like that now because the new CBA, especially when it comes to the recreational drug stuff, is a lot more lenient with these guys in terms of getting on, getting into the program and then later on facing suspensions? Yeah, and you know, it's something where some teams look at it a little more uh, harshly than others. You know, for some teams, it's more of a, an IQ test. Uh, you yeah, know, if you fail a drug fair. test at the combine, which you know it's coming, then either there's, there's one of three things. Either one, you're lazy, two, you're just not very bright, or three, you have a serious problem. That, that's how some teams view it, the, you know, a failed drug test. Now, there are other teams that say, eh, we don't care, especially you know, in 2020, it is what it is. It's, it's not something that is uh, going to be you know, too bad moving forward. But there are some teams that, that look at it pretty harshly. And you know, it's something, especially if uh, you, know, you have a past history. Uh, going back to, and that's where you know a lot of these area scouts. That's where they prove their worth because they're on campus in the fall. They're talking to the strength uh, coach. They're talking to the trainer. They're talking to the janitor. You know, they're finding out everything they can about these players. And if if say a player say that they didn't even fail a uh, drug test, but say they had a diluted sample and you know too much water, this and that, but say they had a failed drug test in college, all of a sudden there's going to be a little bit of doubt there. And so it's, it's something where, uh, you know, some teams will look at it a little more harshly than others, but obviously we're in a different time right now uh, in, in 2020 where things are just a little bit different, the new CBA, the landscape of the country. Uh, but it's still something that some teams will take seriously. 
Well, and there is speculation to that point, Dane, surrounding two prospects, and one of which you could argue maybe the Giants would consider with the fourth overall pick. That's Mekhi Becton, the Louisville offensive lineman. There were reports this week that he's been flagged for a failed drug test, and he and his reps are addressing that. And then, to your point about the diluted test, Wisconsin linebacker Zach Bond, that was an issue for him. I know you have Becton as one of your top three offensive linemen. Bond is considered a very strong contender to maybe even go in the first round. How much do you think this speculation and these reports is going to impact those two players in particular? Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think I think Bond, uh, he was right there on the border of being a first rounder, second rounder. Um, you know, maybe this is something that pushes him instead of being fifty fifty. Uh, maybe now he's you know sixty forty set going second round, the first round. Um, and so it's something where I wouldn't be surprised if we don't hear his name on Thursday night. Um, it's not going to be a free fall for him. I don't think that teams are you know necessarily crossing them off their board but it, it could be a situation where maybe there just aren't as many teams willing to draft him uh, in, in, the, in the first round as uh, what there were you know a couple weeks ago Mackay Becton's a little more interesting um, and it's he, he's got so much talent six seven and a half 365 pounds with that length the movement skills the power he has left side right side versatility uh, and it's not just what you think he is right now, but when you project him forward, the upside that he brings is so immense that I, I think that more more teams than not will look at it and say, you know, are, our interviews went well, we feel comfortable with who he is, like we're going to take the chance here. So I, I don't think Becton's going to fall out of the top, say, 14 picks. I still think, you know, you look at Cleveland at 10, the Jets at 11, um, and I don't, I, I couldn't see him getting past the Bucks at 14. So uh, I still think that you know somewhere in the top 14 picks, a team is going to roll that dice and, and see what they have with Beckton. Dane, all we're hearing about the quarterbacks at the top of this draft is this reality or smokescreen where the Dolphins have kind of made it known uh, to certain extents where look, we're split on these two quarterbacks. Where the other one falls to us, we're fine. And the Chargers, do they love one guy or the other? What's your feel for those two teams in the quarterback spot? Are one of them really going to try to trade up to three or four um, to, you know, the Lions to hop the Dolphins? Or is there another sleeper team further back in the draft, like the Raiders or Jaguars, before Wish was about them, that could be looking to move up to the Giants' spot at number four? Well, Tua, he's the wild card. Uh, I mean, and we, we've been saying this, you know, since the end of the season, and it's even more true now without the 30 visits, without, uh, you know, these workouts. Um, and so with Tua, it, it's just you don't know how each team is going to look at the injuries, look at his body makeup, and project him forward in terms of staying healthy. So it's something that is really tough to project, especially in the top 10, because you have teams that are going to be very risk-adverse. You have some teams that are going to be more willing to take a, take a chance but we just don't know, and it's hard, it's hard to guess. And if, I don't think we're talking enough about if two were to fall out of the top six, where does he land at that point? Uh, the, the, the Jaguars at nine, maybe. I'd be surprised. The Raiders at 12, uh, that, that's a possibility. I don't know if John Gruden would be able to help himself. And then, you know, <laughs> at, what point, at what point do the Patriots get involved, if they're even interested? So there are just so many uh, differing opinions about whether or not he's going to fall out of that top six. I do think Justin Herbert will go five or six. Um, I, I don't know if we're going to see a trade-up. If we do, I think it'll be because the Lions are so willing to get out of there at three that they're going to take 
you know, very little to move back. Because I think they're, they want a defensive playmaker. And they know they can take one at three or they can get one at five or six, no problem. Uh, you know, they're not, they're not going to be – there's going to be someone there, whether it's Okuda or uh, Isaiah Simmons or Derek Brown. They're going to get a defensive playmaker at five or six. So they're willing to trade out of there for, you know, pennies on the dollar – um, and that's also why I don't think we're going to see the Giants uh, have really any movement there at four, just because I think the Lions are going to be more willing to get out of that spot. Now, with that being said, Dane, it's interesting. I agree with you. The Lions clearly need a defensive playmaker, especially with job security, not in the corner of Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia, their GM and head coach. But I'm assuming if Chase Young, by chance, is still on the board, there's no way they're going to move out of that spot under those circumstances. No, 100%. 100%. But, I mean, to your point, I... I just I, I cannot see the first two picks not being Burrow and Chase Young. I, I I think when and I was actually trying to think of it when the last time the first two picks just seemed to be set in stone, or at least that was the vibe. That's the vibe around the league. Um, you know, if, if the first two picks are not Burrow and Young, it would be a complete shock uh, to just about everyone. Uh, so you know, I, I think it's been a while since we've had two picks like this, one two that have been kind of set in stone for so long. But here we are, and I, I think that the draft really starts at number three. Uh, and it's going to be interesting if, if the Lions are able to convince one of those two teams, the Dolphins or the Chargers, to move up to three. And then at number four, I think it comes down to you know the top tackle on the Giants board. And that's, uh, I think at this point, it's kind of anybody's guess who they want to go, go with. All right, let's jump to the second round here, Dane. Because let's say just theoretically, and we don't know what the Giants would do with four, let's say they take an Isaiah Simmons, and they say, you know what, this is a mm-hmm. deep enough tackle class, we want to try to grab our offensive tackle at 36. We did a reporter's mock draft um, on our Giants Huddle podcast, where we had you know reporters from every team select players. We had seven offensive tackles go in the first round, and two centers, so that's nine offensive linemen. Right now, from where you stand and, and sit, where do you, how many offensive tackles do you think will go in the first round? And who do you think is likely to be left for the Giants at 36 when they get there? And is that player worth the bang for the buck? Yeah, I think there's basically there's the big four, and then there's the next four. The big four being Jedrick Wills, Tristan Wirth, Mackay Becton, Andrew Thomas. And then the next four, Josh Jones, Austin Jackson, Ezra Cleveland, and then Isaiah Wilson. And I think it'll be interesting. Uh, I, I do think that of the, the latter half, I, I think that Ezra Cleveland, Austin Jackson, I think they're going first round. And then it just comes down to Josh Jones and Isaiah Wilson. Do either of those two, do they go first round? And if they don't, how early do they go in the second? Uh, because when you look at it in that early second round, you know, there's a chance they can go off the board pretty quickly. You've got Cincinnati at 33. Yep. Uh, you know, may, Detroit's always in, in the uh, possibility for an offensive tackle. So there's a chance we can see the top eight tackles off the board in the first 35 picks. Uh, if one of those tackles were to drop to, say, 36, I, I would guess it's, it, it, it's either Josh Jones or Isaiah Wilson, but there's no guarantee that even they would last that far. How much of a drop-off or a disparity, Dane, do you see between some of those prospects that you mentioned in terms of the Jones, Austin Jackson, Ezra Cleveland, and Isaiah Wilson in particular? Because I'm looking at your rankings right now, and starting with Jones all the way down to Wilson, you have them in that first to second round tier. But how much of a disparity do you see between that group? Not a ton, and I think it just comes down to preference, kind of like the top four. Uh, you know, what exactly are you looking for? Austin Jackson, he's literally the youngest player in this draft. Uh, 
and he's got immense potential, but it's still potential. And there's going to be some rough patches for him as he grows and learns, but teams are you know, obsessed with what he could be two years from now, three years from now. Ezra Cleveland, there might not be any hotter name uh, in NFL circles with uh, the way teams are talking about him in terms of not only the tape and what he produced with, uh, with, with a turf toe injury this past year, but also his athletic profile, the football characters off the charts. So I think both those guys are going to go uh, at some point in the top 25 Josh Jones, he's the only senior of this group. Four-year starter, all at left tackle, had five different offensive line coaches, so that really stunted his development, played his best football as a senior. Um, and so I think there, there's a lot to like about him. Isaiah Wilson, a little bit of the opposite, where he played only two seasons, a redshirt sophomore, played right tackle. Uh, you know, He's more of your, your big, mauling, 6'6 six, six 350 pounds, needs to keep his weight in check needs to fine-tune some things, but you really like just the, the natural ability. So I think that, you know, there's it comes down to preference if you're looking more towards upside or if you're looking more towards polish, uh, if you're looking more pass protection, run block. And there's this, there, with each one of these guys, you can poke holes in them, but also, you know, sell why you think they're the best choice. Dane, one thing I think we've seen over the past few years that not a lot of people talk about is centers, I think, tend to go a little bit higher than a lot of people mm-hmm. think heading into these drafts, that teams value that position a lot, you know, helping the quarterback call protection, leader of the line, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what's your feel for Ruiz and Cushenberry? I know you have them at the top of your center class here. Uh, are they going to still be around the 36, or do you think they're going to get gobbled up before then? I have them right at the, at the start of round two, so I think there's a good chance they could be there. But, I mean, to your point, centers, uh, you know, they, they do go high. And it's a, it's a weird position because, obviously, there's only one uh, on the field at all times. It's kind of like quarterback where, you know, they, they, all it takes is one team to believe that uh, they're the guy and there's a limited amount of starting centers in this group. And I think it is Ruiz and Cushenberry at the top. So I would not be surprised at all if, uh, you know, one or both were able to sneak into that top 32, top 35 uh, but at the same time, I, I could see them both being being around at 36. So I think that'll be kind of a coin flip about those top two centers. And it, it'll be really interesting. Is this a decent center class? Because I think there's not a huge drop-off to Matt Hennessy at a Temple. I think Nick Harris from Washington could sneak into that third round. And then uh, uh, Ismail from San Diego State. He's somewhere in the top four rounds. So this is a sneaky, talented center group this year. Dane, John brought up the hypothetical scenario that if the Giants choose Isaiah Simmons with the fourth overall pick, then maybe they would target an offensive lineman in the second round. I'm curious your perspective on Simmons because there's a lot of speculation that that could be one direction the Giants go, or maybe they do take an offensive tackle with the fourth overall pick. As far as positional value goes and what you've seen on film out of Simmons with his versatility, is the value match up for Simmons at four in comparison to an offensive tackle? Yeah, value-wise, I think so. Um, and I think as long as you are comfortable that your defensive coordinator is creative enough to understand what Simmons can offer and then to utilize that on the football field, I would not hesitate to draft Isaiah Simmons somewhere in the top five or six picks. I think value-wise, that value is the versatility. It's the fact that, you know, it's not the offense that's trying to manipulate your defense with up-tempo and different formations and just different uh, personnel groupings. It's the defense that's going to try to manipulate the offense because with Isaiah Simmons, 
He can line up on off the edge, the blitzer. He can spy. He can line up over the slot receiver. He's a four-down player who you don't have to worry about getting him off the field or trying to, uh, you know, get him in a, a perfect location for to use his strengths because he can do a little bit of everything and do it at a high level. So I think that's the value with Simmons is the fact that he doesn't have to come off the field and that where he lines up, that can manipulate the offense and really affect how the play caller is calling plays and what the quarterback is reading pre-snap, and that'll help the rest of the defense. Dan, I'm not sure if you saw your colleague at the Athletics, Bob McGinn's uh, draft column on the offensive tackles. I thought it was really interesting. You know, he asked scouts and GMs around the league to rank the tackles, and I think, and you know, you give a point value for where they're ranked, and mm-hmm. I think the, the top four guys were all within four or five points of each other in terms of where teams had ranked them. Are you finding that there really is no consensus here, Dane? on those top four guys, and through all your work, I see your rankings, but how did you kind of differentiate those four guys um, when you got to the end of your process? Yeah, no doubt. There, there really is no consensus. It, it comes down to preference and what you're looking for. Um, and the, the littlest thing could be the difference between uh, a tackle going first or second. You know, for example, Jedrick Wills from Alabama, it, point blank, he's just the best tackle that I watched this year. I think when you look at the wingspan that he offers, uh, the flexibility through his hips, a mauler in the run game, holds up well in pass protection, but he was a right tackle only at Alabama and, and in high school. Now the context is that Tua being a lefty, he was actually protecting his blind side. But without these workouts, and you, know, you weren't able to send your offensive line coach Tuscaloosa to have Wills line up in a left tackle stance and see how his, his muscle memory is working and different things like that. You, you don't have that ability uh, with currently the landscape of the country, unfortunately. So with Jedrick Wills, that maybe that could be the difference between uh, you know Andrew Thomas going ahead of a Jedrick Wills. Uh, we know with Tristan Wirfs, uh, the athletic profile that he offers is off the charts. Some still believe he's going to be a better guard. Mackay Becton with this latest news about uh, you know the the uh, drug sample from the combine. So with all four of these offensive tackles, I I would not take much for me to sell you on each one of them. It's just going to come down to preference with with each and every single team. And I I mean I've talked to teams where you know there's no consensus in the building. You know they're they're uh, fighting for who each each scout and each general manager thinks is, is the better uh, better tackle. So it's a really fascinating position at the top. Would not be surprised at all. Uh, if any one of those four were the first tackle off the board. Dan, I want to stay in the trenches, and the Giants have depth at the defensive tackle position on their roster, but I think Derek Brown is a unique player out of Auburn, and Mm -hmm. Dave Gettleman, going back to his days with the Panthers, has had a track record of taking defensive tackles on the line specifically high. How much of an upside, how much of a ceiling do you see out of Derek Brown in terms of his potential to perhaps bring those sack numbers up. He had 12 and a half over four years, but, I mean, he was double-teamed a lot. Is there more upside to him as a pass rusher on the NFL level than perhaps other defensive tackles that you've seen in recent history? Yeah, I think a little bit because he's so explosive, uh, upper body and lower body. Um, and, and what I love most about Derek Brown is the effort. Uh, this guy does not stop hustling, and you know, throw on the Iron Bowl tape and watch the fourth quarter. I, 325 pounders, most of those guys are gassed by the fourth quarter. Not Derek Brown. I mean, he. this is why he came back for his senior year at Auburn, and he, he played his butt off. So Derek Brown is an easy player to like, 
but I do think that, you know, he never had more than four and a half sacks in a single season. Yeah. And, you know, part of that, I think you're absolutely right, saw a lot of attention, plenty of double teams. He necessarily wasn't just asked to go get the quarterback uh, with the way that he was used. But I would have a tough time drafting him over some of these other defensive players in this draft just because of if I'm drafting a defensive tackle in the top 10, top 12, he better, you know, he's not going to be, he might not be Aaron Donald, but he better get me some backfield production. He better uh, threaten uh, what the offense is doing and get them off schedule. And I think Derrick Brown can do that even more so than what the stat sheet will read. But still, I, I think a little bit is projection, and that's why I'd probably lean towards an Isaiah Simmons or a Jeffrey Okuda. But he's still just a really good player, and I think he has low bust potential. I think you know pretty much exactly what you're getting with Derrick Brown. Lance was trying to just scare Giant fans out there. That's <laughs> I like the spice. Yeah, he does, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just a couple more for Dane Brugley here. Dane, usually when you're picking a 36, what dictates who you select is just who falls down the board, right? There might be guys sitting there, and you're like, damn, this guy shouldn't belong here. I need to take this guy. He's just the best guy that's there. From what you're hearing, who are, who's one of those guys that you think might slip out of that first round that deserves to be there? That maybe could be sitting around top of the second round. Maybe an AJ Epinesa, maybe one of the safeties, a Xavier McKinney, someone like that. Who are some of the guys that you think might drop a little bit that shouldn't? Yeah, I think you hit on a couple of them there. With I mean, AJ Epinesa, he has that 504 40-yard dash attached to his name. And for some teams, that'll tough to get tough to get by. Uh, but that, you know, watching him on film, he doesn't win with pure speed. He wins with his heavy hands. He wins with savvy. And so I think Epinesa, um, you know, he should be right there in that late first conversation. But if he were to drop to the early second round, I think that'd make a lot of sense. And I know the Giants have put in uh, some pl- plenty of time on AJ Epinesa, so that would definitely be a name to watch. Um, I, I wouldn't be shocked if we don't see any of the safeties off the board in the first round. So maybe we see a scenario where all the safeties are around in that early second round, whether it's Xavier McKinney or Jeremy Chin, Grant Delpit. Uh, the, the second round is the sweet spot for the safeties this year. Uh, I think running back is a position where I, I, I look at J.K. Dobbins, uh, DeAndre Swift, Jonathan Taylor, Clyde Edwards-Alaire. I think all four of those players are worthy of first-round consideration we might not have any of them go in the first round. And at most, one, maybe, maybe two. So there's going to be a couple of those running backs early in the second round who provide outstanding value at that point in the draft. So, uh, and we mentioned Zach Bond earlier, uh, you know, where I think he's 50-50 right now to go in the first, but uh, now with the diluted sample, maybe that will push him more towards the early second. Uh, and then we have to look at receiver as well. Uh, those receivers are going to get pushed down uh, with uh, just the sheer volume of, of talent in this class. A lot of teams are going to look at it in the first round and say, well, you know, we're going to get our corner here or we're going to get our offensive tackle because we know we, can, we, we like the value in rounds two, rounds three at receiver. We can hold off on that position. We don't have to take a Brandon Ayuk or a Denzel Mims or uh, whoever it is in, in this late first. And so we could see some of these receivers – uh, not because of talent, but just because the volume of the class is so impressive, teams will opt for another position knowing they can get a guy they like later on. Any shot Patrick Queen or Kenneth Murray drop into that second round? I'd be pretty surprised. I think both offer enough. You know, they're three-down players. Uh, you know, Patrick Queen is just so dang explosive. He's so much fun to watch. And another guy who is, doesn't turn 21 until the summer, very young. Um, and, and Kenneth Murray, 
got so much going for him on the field, off the field. I'd, I'd be pretty surprised if one of those two were to fall uh, to the second round. You brought up wide receiver, and I agree with you, Dane. There's a tremendous amount of depth at that position. You could argue the Giants could utilize a taller receiver to complement what they currently have on the roster. Who in particular jumps out to you? And it doesn't necessarily have to even be a player that they could target at the second round, but maybe somebody in the mid-rounds or later that could be that complement to Sterling Shepard, Golden Tate, Slade, and who they have on the roster. That could be that red zone big type of body target. Well, if they went that direction in the second round, I think Michael Pittman uh, would make a ton of sense there at uh, 36. Uh, 6'4", 225, ran in the low 4'5", uh, really good athlete, and I think he's fits a lot of what the Giants would be looking for. He's a team captain, big time on special teams, not a guy you're going to have to worry about off the field, um, and he just the production that he put up this past year. Uh, he can be that power forward down the field or in the red zone uh, and out-muscle DBs at the catch point. So, that would make a lot of sense. Uh, if they waited until the early third, then maybe, or they don't have that pick, but if they waited on, until later on in the third, uh, if they made a move, then maybe they go chase Claypool if he's still around, who is just a physical marvel, uh, who some teams are even looking at him at tight end, being almost 240 pounds, but running a 4-4. So, you know, there's, he offers a different type of skill set that teams are interested, no question about it. So this team or this this wide receiver class, I think, offers a lot of different types of, of receivers. Uh, I think in my mock draft, I had the Giants going with Brian Edwards out of South Carolina, who I think is being very overlooked right now because he had a uh, slight little, he had a minor knee injury, so he missed the Senior Bowl. He broke his foot training for the combine, so he's kind of been out of sight, out of mind. Uh, but Brian Edwards, uh, South Carolina's all-time leading receiver, uh, big, a good-sized athlete, 6'3", 212. Uh, there, there's a lot to like about him. Debo Samuel, when he was at South Carolina, a good player, but he did not overshadow Edwards. Edwards was a big part of what they did in that offense. So Brian Edwards could be a player who maybe has a discount sticker on him because he's uh, kind of been off the radar uh, during the pre-draft process but he's absolutely worthy of top 75 uh, consideration. Dane, final question. Uh, you mentioned A.J. Vanessa, somebody the Giants have done a lot of work on. Based on what you know and who you've talked to, what are the players out there have you kind of noticed up and down the draft board that the Giants have particularly been in touch with or, or done a lot of work on? Well, I did mention Epinesa, um, you know, talking to people around the league. That's uh, a couple a couple people mentioned that match uh, with Epinesa being just a fit for what the Giants would be looking for, assuming they go off at the tackle or Isaiah Simmons in the first round. Uh, you know, I think you look at in the second round, and that could be the, the, the spot where they pick up a, an edge rusher. And Epinesa, 6'5", 275, uh, did not test well, like I mentioned earlier, but that's why, I mean, if you're the Giants, that's, you're okay with that because that's why you might even have a shot at him that late uh, in the draft. And so it, I, I, I get that he's not that pure speed rusher is just going to scream off the edge and surprise tackles. Uh, but it, that, that's not the only way to get to the, to the quarterback. You watch the way he uses his hand, and it'll remind you of, of Joey Bosa a little bit. Now, he's not as, quite as twitchy as Bosa. It uh, doesn't have uh, you know, nearly the dynamic presence. But in terms of the hand usage, in terms of the savvy to you know, understand 
his biomechanics to break down the rhythm of the blocker and get to the quarterback. I think Epinesa can do that. So love the fit for the Giants there in the early second round. And I know he was your pick for the Giants in your seven-round mock. Uh, are you still with it? I know you had Worfs at four and Epinesa at six, double Iowa. Do you still think that's going to be where <laughs> the Giants go on Thursday and Friday? I think it'd be a home run if they did. Um, you know, obviously at that fourth spot, I, I do think they go tackle. Um, it, but it's just anyone's guess, you know, which tackle they prefer. Wouldn't be shocked at Andrew Thomas. Um, you know, Werfs is obviously appealing. And then, you know, I do think Epinesa, there are a few teams in the late first, uh, the Patriots. Uh, there are a couple other teams that are looking at Epinesa. So no guarantee that he even makes it to Friday. He might off, be off of the board uh, Thursday yeah. night, but I do love the fit if it plays out that way. Dane, awesome stuff, my friend. Thank you so much for the time. You've been with us a few times during the draft season. Thank you. We appreciate it. And enjoy this week as much as you can. And then I guess what? You start on 2021, what, in May? How soon? Uh, 2021 mock will be up next Monday. So uh, <laughs> I, I, look look for it. it. It'll be interesting, I promise. God bless. Thank you, Dane. Stay Thanks, safe, Dane. my appreciate friend. It. We really Take appreciate care, it. Guys. That's Dane Brugler. Does a fantastic job covering the draft. You guys know it. He's he's one of my favorites. He really is. Does a fantastic job, and his draft guide is out. Um, it's just a wonderful piece of work, guys. Really, it's about I don't know, probably about f- I think five hundred pages, give or take. If you print it out front and back, it's not too bad. Maybe it's about three hundred pages. But he basically goes through yeah, it's about three hundred, three hundred, right? He goes through about every single player that not only is going to get drafted, but is going to be undrafted free agents as well, and gives you a nice little, I think, land succinct little group of paragraphs on those guys, all their numbers, all their stats, all their measurements, all their combine numbers, and it's all presented just in a very, very handy way where it's real easy to find stuff about anybody you want when you're watching this draft over the weekend. Yeah, I agree. It's by far my favorite guide over the years that I've turned to because, to your point, it's not just number-oriented. You get actually background information, John, about the player. He goes back, he tells you what he did in high school and some of the nuts and bolts that obviously an executive would want to know in terms of characters. So you really have everything nicely laid out, as you pointed out. You don't have to go through a million other resources, in my opinion, to get follow-up information because I think he gives you the ideal summary of what you'd want on each and every single player. And that's why it's so convenient because if you could go to one place, 300-some-odd pages, shuffle through, look through the various positions, it's ordered by position, it's a really it's a work of literature, for the lack of a better description. Yeah, and you can get if you're a subscriber to The Athletic, you can find it there. You can find them on Twitter at DP Brugler. Excellent job by Dane, and we look forward to talking to him next year as we get closer to the draft. So, Lance, your reaction to, to some of the buzz and the other stuff that, that Dane spoke about with us in terms of what he thinks might go down here. And, you know, the more and more I think about it, this is my kind of reaction to it, and I'm not sure if Cover 3 is up yet on Giants.com. If not, it should be shortly. And... Dan Salomon had his answer to the question today, what was your bold prediction for the draft? And I, I wrote a paragraph on it, but then I backed away on it. And I thought I was considering putting in there there will not be a trade in the top 10 picks. I think that is a legitimate possibility here, given the injury questions surrounding Tua, where there might not be a team that really wants to pay the premium to move up for a quarterback. Now, to Dane's point, if the Chargers are willing to take, oh, move down two spots for a third-round pick, yeah, a team's going to trade up to make sure they get their guy. But I don't think we're going to see that massive, you know, a bunch of assets to move up a, a, a decent amount of spots here to go get that quarterback. 
I wouldn't be surprised either. But the other thing, the reason why I don't think there may be a quarterback trade, first of all, the Dolphins and the Chargers are back-to-back, John. And that's really where you would say you start seeing teams that have a need and an interest in a quarterback because everybody else before the Dolphins – And I know there's some buzz around the Redskins, but they did acquire Kyle Allen from the Panthers. I know he wasn't a high pick. I just, once again, I find it very difficult to believe Washington's going to invest another pick at a quarterback. So I agree. The quarterback shuffle would then begin at five. If you're the Dolphins and you're the Chargers, John, and you say to yourself, to your point, we like Tua, but there's not that big of a drop-off to Herbert in our eyes because of the risk involved with Tua and the hip injury— then why are we going to go crazy in trying to move up ahead of one team? So that's another reason why I think most of these teams are going to stay put. Just also a quick side note regarding the whole speculation about Tua. I spoke to Dennis Pitta, who's the former Ravens tight end that dislocated his hip three times yep. on my SiriusXM mm-hmm. Mad Dog Sports radio program, and he provided some very interesting oh, insight. What do you say? Because he went through this. He is not concerned about Tua the player, and being able to come back and get to the level he was in terms of his overall ability. Let me guess. The he, confidence. G- g- given Pitta happened to him three times, he's worried about re-injury. Correct. And, the, and what he is worried about is he's worried, John, that because of what Pitta went through, they're going to hold that against Tua. Because they're going to look at the fact mm. that Pitta actually had a very similar injury to Tua, and he immediately had surgery the day of after he initially dislocated his hip because he said the big issue is the blood flow. I'm not trying to come off as a doctor, but the issue is the blood flow to the hip, and that's why you immediately have to undergo surgery to get that hip back in place to make sure the nerves and the blood flow stays as is. And Pitta said everything went well with his surgery. Everything was good test-wise for the blood flow, but he then a year later wound up dislocating it again, and he thinks that even though the test showed the blood flow was okay, that it may have not been. And that's what he's concerned. He's concerned that it's an inexact science to determine whether or not the blood flow is going to be 100%, and that's what he's nervous about with Tua. But he's not nervous, John, about him being able to get out there throw the ball deep, have good reads, be confident. It's just a matter of if he's hit in the wrong position or even if he moves in a different motion that nobody anticipated to elude a defender that when they least expect it, he could re-injure it. Yeah, and look, and you know, you talk about the blood flow thing. That's what ended Bo Jackson's career. That is not an issue with Correct. Tua, to your point, because the blood flow was good. But look, re-injury is always a possibility. And one thing Dane always says um, is that the best... Um, evidence that there could be future injury is past injury. And that's just kind of the way it goes, right? There's, you know, no one has a crystal ball. No one has any idea what's going to happen, but there is an indication if there's a weakness there that it could happen again. So uh, to me, I, I think there's going to be, and I think Dane made a really good point, that there is going to be a team, whether it's the Lions or the Dolphins, that's going to say, look, especially the Dolphins, we have a ton of draft capital here. We want to make sure we get our guy Let's give him a third-round pick. Let's move up two spots to make sure we get the one guy we want. I could see that happening. Same deal with the Lions because I think how you look at this and why it's so advantageous, I think, for the both the Lions and the Giants, if they can move back to five or six, it's such an easy decision for them to make because they're probably going to get the exact same player they would have wanted at their original position. So there's really nothing to stop them from doing it 
and and making the trade, which I think probably drives down the cost to make that move if you're San Diego or Miami. And despite other rumors, Lance, I don't see one of these teams. You know, we had Jordan Rodriguez. She's a great reporter for the Panthers, covers the athletic. She is convinced, 100%, they're not moving for a quarterback. So I think that's out of the question. And I'm not buying the Jaguars and Raiders trading multiple first-round picks to go get a quarterback when they have young guys already on their roster. I just don't see it. Yeah, neither am I. I think if anyone is going to have an interest in a quarterback, it's a few teams later on in the first round, such as the Saints. I think New Orleans could be a wild card team, but I think New Orleans could say to itself, why are we waiting to make a big move here? Let's just be patient and let's see who's on the board. Maybe Jordan Love is there, and then we don't even have to move. And New England's another team I would throw yeah. out there, John. And, and I think they could be patient as well. And I think Pittsburgh, they don't have a first-round pick, but they have a second-round pick. They're obviously looking for the guy after Roethlisberger. Yeah. So, That's yeah. definitely another team in the conversation, too. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm with you. So I, I just don't see it. I, I just don't. Um, I wonder how many of these offensive tackles are going to go in the first round. I think it's, it's going to be a real interesting experiment to see, because I almost feel like the second group of offensive line prospects is almost like what the first group of offensive line prospects has been in a lot of draft classes, because this first group is, is just so, so good. So teams are still going to value that second group, because I think there is a pretty big drop-off once you get past that top eight. That's why I think that we could see, and I know you, Paul, and I have had mock drafts, and there's been mock drafts where we've had nearly 10 offensive linemen be taken between the two of us. Now, that also includes the centers, by the way. We shouldn't say that it's just the tackles. It depends on how desperate teams are and how much in love they are with the potential and upside of that second-tier group. Because what I found very interesting, you were asking me about my takeaways from Dane, when I asked Dane about what's the disparity between Jones, Jackson, Wilson, some of those other guys, and he said, really, it's you know similar to ice cream. You know, What's your favorite flavor? What upside do you see in what guy? So all it takes is, John, one team to be enamored with putting that guy on the offensive line and thinking he's going to have success. And you could certainly make an argument again. I think there's teams in the latter part of the first round that could use tackles or can at least use a center. Kansas City, for example, is a team that comes to mind. And that's all this way that you get those offensive linemen to go up in numbers. So if you asked me how many guys, I would not be surprised if we see between seven and nine offensive linemen go in the first round. Yeah, I'm with you. I think 10 maybe is a little much. <laughs> I think it might be a little much, but look, that would be the two top centers and, and the top eight tackles, so it wouldn't surprise me. All right, Lance, we got about 20 minutes. You ready to answer some questions here from fans? Absolutely. All right, here we go. This is from Dan. If the Giants happen to take all of their four seventh-round picks this year, what positions do you see being targeted late in the draft? Well, pass rusher, I could see being a position that they would maybe take a flyer on late, especially if they don't address that early, because it's still a need, and you could argue they need depth at that position. Wide receiver is another one. We talked about it with Dane, the big, tall, big-bodied guy that you want to hit in the end zone. I'd say that would be a position that I could see them targeting late, or in the middle round, safety would be something else that I think warrants the conversation because of the fact that you may want to line somebody up with Jabril Peppers that may not be Jordan Love. Maybe you want to give yourself another option. So those are the three positions, John, that I think come to mind. And I also wouldn't rule out if perhaps they want to 
delve into a young running back and see if they could develop a player like that. I know Wayne Goldman's still in the mix. They brought in Deion Lewis, but I wouldn't rule that out. Remember, New England had a plethora of backs. Patrick Graham was there when that happened, and so was Joe Judge. So I don't think you could overlook that as well. Now, I will say this. To me, I believe that simply based on the depth of this class, Lance, I think those two picks, which I think are going to be critical to how we view this draft for the Giants three or four years from now, that pick in 99 at the end of the third round and that pick in 110 at the top of the fourth round, those are going to be an opportunity to get two guys that can start for you, I think. And I think two positions in those two spots, and I know this isn't the end of the draft, I'll touch that in a second, I think those two spots are based on the depth of the class and where the value is usually for these positions, I think just sitting where I am right now, and this could very well change based on how the board um, comes off on draft night on Friday, to me, I think a wide receiver in one of those two picks could make a lot of sense, given the depth of the class. You might be able to get a late second-round value on a receiver in that spot. And I think slot cornerback, where there are a number of good slot corners in this draft, and a lot of times the smaller guys, as you well know, Lance, do not get picked as high as maybe they should. That's right. So I think those two positions at those two spots could match up with value, much like Julian Love, you know, smaller guy. People thought he could play the slot. Got him in the fourth round last year. I think those two spots at the third and fourth round could be nice fits in terms of value to what could be available to what the Giants need. Well, with respect to your point about the slot corner, especially if maybe there's a guy that has the versatility to play safety and slot too, I wouldn't rule that out. Yeah, Terrell Burgess, uh, someone like that. Yeah, I mean, that makes him even more attractive because then they can move them around depending on who shows up in camp and who emerges perhaps currently on the roster. And we've heard time and time again, the wide receiver class has an overwhelming amount of talent and teams are probably going to wait and they're going to be patient on that front. And that, I think, bodes well for the Giants. However, when we had Rick Saratella of the NFL Draft Bible on, one of the things he also pointed out was that in recent history, there's also been a lot of teams that have missed on wide receivers. So despite the depth, there's also risk involved in that position too. But to your point, if the Giants wait on the wide receiver and they go in the middle of the late rounds, there to me is not as much risk because as you go further down in the rounds, the chances of that player putting on a gold jacket or becoming a true star is limited as it is. So I don't see necessarily any issue if they did want to address that position at that point. And to me, once you get to the day three of the draft and you get out of those first three rounds, and a lot of people don't think of it this way, but I do. To me, Lance, the deeper you get in the draft, the less need should matter. Because it's extremely hard to find guys that you think can develop into starters on day three, in the fifth, in the sixth, in the seventh round. So if you see a guy and you're like, boy, I think this guy can start one day. We have him as a third rounder. I don't care what position he plays. If you think he's going to be good, you pick that guy. So late in the draft, I'm not targeting positions. I'm literally going best player available. I think when you're higher in the draft, and and Dave Gettleman made this point on his conference call on Friday, you have one guy with a 98 grade, one guy with a 96 grade out of 100, obviously, which is not how they grade it, but for this theoretical purpose, I'll use it. You have one guy with a 98, one guy with a 96. The 96 is a spot that you really need and is super premium. Yeah, pick the 96 guy. You're not, you know, betraying your board by doing that. But, and I think you can do that in the first round, even to some extent the second round. When you get deeper... You just pick the guy that you're most convinced is going to be a good starting player in this league, and you go and you grab him. I don't care where they play. I'm with you. And if you just use the Giants as an example, look at last year, John. Now, 
the fifth round maybe is not as late as the sixth or the seventh. So no, it, maybe it qualifies. That do- it qualifies, okay. absolutely. So if it does qualify, then you can argue that the Giants between Ryan Connolly, and of course we need to see how he recovers from the torn ACL, and Darius Slayton could very well have fined two starting players yeah. for the short term because of the direction of best player available upside as opposed to major need. Now, did they meet needs? Yes, I think both of those positions met needs at this time last year. But, you know, with what they currently did in free agency in terms of bringing in Golden Tate and having Sterling Shepard on the roster, if they didn't take a wide receiver and Darius Slayton, I don't think, John, it would have been the end of the world. And as far as the linebacker position is concerned, same thing. You know, at this time last year, they had some linebackers on the roster. Were they still looking for a playmaker? Absolutely. But Look at how those two guys panned out, at least in the early stages, and hopefully it bodes well for the Giants here moving forward. Yeah, no question about it. I agree. And go back a couple years before, like B.J. Hill, defensive tackle wasn't necessarily in need that year. Yeah. But they thought he was a good player, so they took them. All right, here we go. This kind of goes to the point I just made. This is from Phil and Trenton. Wants to talk about, this is a long question, I'll read it. Difficulty of drafting the best player available versus filling positional needs on the roster. Every GM interview he's ever seen is not about taking the best player. It's about taking the best player available, and then they end up drafting for need, and they end up reaching. How many times have we heard that you can't draft too many good players? With that being said, we still find ourselves thinking in terms of drafting the best defensive player, then the best offensive tackle, et cetera, et cetera, and you assign certain positions to certain rounds, and it doesn't seem like that's the right way to think about things. So his question is, how in the world do you balance selecting the best player on the board with somewhat obvious position needs we have in the roster, and at what point are you reaching too far? How much does need actually factor into the equation for a good general manager? Now, I think for certain positions, Lance, like if you have an all-pro center that's 24 years old, there's only one on the field, you probably don't want to go use your first-round pick on a center, right? Because he's not going to play. And you have to change positions to get him on the field. Same deal. If you have like an all-pro quarterback, you're not going to go use your fifth overall pick in the draft on a quarterback. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. But, you know, so many other positions, in two years, you don't know what your need is going to be. So... I think the exercise that fans do, and I think Phil in this part of his his statement was right, where they say, well, let's just get the best defensive player here. We get the best tackle here. We get the best this there. You're not drafting positions. You're drafting players. It's it's something that I say all the time, and it's so important for fans to understand. And my point when I said I want to pick a wide receiver and a slot guy in the third and fourth round is not because I need players at those positions. It's because I think the best players will be at those positions when the Giants get there. That's how you make those decisions. It's not, oh, my second biggest need is this, so I'll pick him in the second round. My biggest need is this, I'll pick him in the first round. That is how you make poor selections. Yeah, and that's why I almost find it comical, and we get tweets, we get emails, we get phone calls every single year where fans, and I understand they're passionate, they want to sort of lay out their own mock drafts for us to hear, and it goes by position every single round. So I pretty much dismiss that. I I never can imagine a scenario where if you put a bunch of GMs in a room, they would tell you that even before the draft starts, that they put their goals on the board and the goals are position-based. The goals are player-based, based based on the evaluation and the upside and where they estimate 
those players are going to be going throughout the course of the draft. So if they say, hey, we really like this wide receiver, we have him as evaluated as a fifth-round talent, that would be our goal. Maybe he's on the board in the fifth round and we'll consider him. But to me, the decision has to be made, John, based on where your board dictates it to go. So for example, if you get to a round and you still have a need that you haven't addressed, if the need matches up with the value or is in the ballpark of the players that you have valued in that range, then I would say I have no problem with you taking the player that best fits your need. But for example, if you have a cluster of five guys that you're considering in the fifth round and defensive lineman is still your major need, but when it comes to the rankings of those five players, the defensive lineman is on the bottom of the list and there's a big disparity compared compared to the four other guys, then that would be a stretch in my mind, John. And that means that you're just basically looking for the one guy to fill a void on your roster as opposed to the guy that actually may have some upside and is going to pan out. All right, let's go to Steven in the UK next. He's on lockdown, really enjoying our show. We appreciate it. Um, He thinks Mark Colombo will influence the choice of the best offensive tackle. No doubt, I'm sure they'll... um, get the opinion of the offensive line coach. Uh, he was in the meetings, obviously, with all the offensive linemen at the Combine. Um, here's his question. If the four OTs are graded very closely together and without a clear certainty of who is best, wouldn't it be better to look down the trade three or four spots and take the best that's left? You can pick up that pick in between your second and third round. There's where there's so much space. Yes, yeah, Stephen, the answer is yes, and I made this point uh, in one of the mailbag columns the last couple days. The Giants might say to themselves... We want to trade back so bad, we can't even verbalize how much we want to trade back. That's how much we want to trade back. That doesn't mean they're going to be able to trade back. You have to have a dance partner here, and that was why Lance and I kind of asked Dane and had the conversation afterwards, uh, the conversation we had about the quarterbacks and teams wanting to move up. Lance, there's there's a chance where there just might not be an opportunity where the Giants can move down, wind up where they want, and get the value they want for that type of move down. Well, that goes back to the conversation you and I had earlier with respect to the quarterbacks. And maybe there's not an urgency to move up because there's some question marks connected to Tua. And maybe some of these teams don't have a big drop-off between prospects. It takes two to tango. That's essentially, John, what you were saying. And that was where I was going to go with my response. It's a hypothetical thought from a lot of fans we hear from, and it's a logical thought. I would agree with the question from the fan in terms of if you're evaluating all four offensive linemen and you like all four or you can live with all four, and maybe that's not a good term because you want to have more confidence than you can live with a guy, but the point is there's not a great deal of separation. Yes, in theory it would make sense. Why not get more picks later on in the draft and at the same time walk away with one of those four guys? But that's half the conversation, John. If nobody is willing to move up to four because nobody is that enamored to grab a player and they feel they can stay as is, then the conversation is wasteful. You need somebody else to want to meet you halfway. And the Giants may have interest, but there's no guarantee somebody's going to want to meet them halfway. And more than likely, John, any team that wants to move up to grab the fourth overall pick You likely make that move because you want a quarterback. It's highly unlikely somebody is going to tell the Giants, we have to have this offensive lineman and therefore we want to switch spots with you. So you then have to ask yourself, who is saying to themselves right now, they have to have a quarterback? The Dolphins and the Chargers may be saying that, but they're picking one and two spots behind the Giants. Are they that excited to have to move up one spot just to get ahead of one another? I would be very surprised by that. 
Richard wants to know what's more likely that the Giants trade down and get more picks and the offensive tackle in round one or take Simmons at four. And by the way, the Giants could trade down and still get Isaiah Simmons too, by the way. There's no guarantee they can't do that also. And this is the second part of the question because we've addressed that top part a lot. Do you think they could then trade back up at some other point by packaging some of those seventh-round picks? They have three of them in a deal. Guys, I'd love the idea. The problem is that seventh-round picks are not um, necessarily <laughs> valuable enough um, to do that, sadly. Um, you know, it, the value just isn't there. Those are kind of throw-ins to even out deals when all is said and done. But you're not – you could package all three seventh-round picks. You know, it's not going to help you move more than a few spots on day two, if that at all. You're probably going to have to offer more than that. So uh, I get the you want to be able to try to turn those seventh-round picks into something else. Well, the same reason you want to – Get rid of those seventh-round picks and use them on a higher pick is the same reason another team wouldn't want to take those second-round picks and sacrifice a higher pick. Seventh-round picks, there's a lot of flyers when it comes to that round, John. And it's like any other trade when you try to do it in fantasy football and you just try to pile on more and more role players to see if the opposing owner will at least agree to your trade. <laughs> Correct. You know, that's somewhat <laughs> as I view seventh-round picks. Listen, you can continue to stockpile it and make the other owner enamored with the fact, oh, my God, you're giving me four picks. It's all about substance. The seventh round, you could give them 10 seventh round picks. Where's the substance in all of that? So I don't know how attractive that makes the scenario for another team. I don't think realistically the Giants would be able to make a huge move by just stockpiling a few seventh round picks. I think you can move up slightly, but you're not going to move up enough to say, wow, we're really going to be in a position to select a game changer. All right, final question here, Lance. Let me see. Which one should I go with here? Let me see. Here we go. Well, no, that question is specifically for Fiegels. I'll have to, I'll have to switch that one. Uh, let me see. The prep here. work we do before a show is top notch. Well, I, I, well I, I thought those three would be enough, to be honest with you. So I wanted to make sure I get one more in here. Actually, you know what? Let me get your take here, Lance. We, we have a show tomorrow. I don't think we're going to have a guest, so we're going to do a lot of questions tomorrow. So I'll save some of those for tomorrow. As we sit here now, and we'll, we'll do our final mock draft on, on, on Wednesday, and you'll have a chance to make the pick. If you had a gut feeling as to the general path the Giants take in the first and second round. And heck, you can go deeper if you want in this draft. What do you think they're going to do? Well, if the first round pick is offensive line, then I think the goal in the second round would be to see if a guy like A.J. Epinesa would fall to them because then I think that would match up with value and need. I think a wide receiver also because of the depth would match up with value and need. That would be a position that I think would make sense also in round two, and this is also, once again, assuming you go offensive lineman with the fourth overall pick. So those would be the two positions that I think you could take into consideration. And the third one I would throw in would be the safety position. For example, if Xavier McKinney is on the board from Alabama, that would be also value and need meeting up. And that's why I'm specifying value and need, John, because we were asked about the question of, well, we just debated why you don't go position by position in each round. I'm telling you, though, here is where need and value match up. So those would be the three positions. And you could talk about that in the second round and the third round in terms of where I think they would go with that. You're right. Again, you're, you're putting that out there because you think players will, at Correct. those positions are going exactly. to be good enough to be picked in those spots, which is why you would go after those guys. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and your gut right now still says offensive tackle in the first round? And my gut is going back and forth. I will say this, <laughs> Mine John, too, to be honest with you. Because every time I listen to Dave Gettleman talk, I go back and forth on opposite ends of the spectrum. 
when he had the conference call with Chris Pettit on last Friday. Yeah. And he talked about the depth of the tackle position, the depth of the offensive line, if you want to word it that way. You know, that also would lead me to believe that maybe they feel good about somebody being on the board potentially in the second round. I wouldn't rule that out because I think we're focusing a lot on the depth of the top four. And maybe you can move down slightly or you just take one of the four guys that you're really excited about. But what does that mean, John, perhaps of them saying also they think guys are going to be available in the second round that are quality? And would that make them think about going elsewhere at another position of value with the fourth overall pick? So I've been thinking like that a lot in terms of what Dave Gettleman had to say. Or it could also be a smokescreen like anything else and you can't read too much into it. So... I don't know right now. I'm still going very much back and forth between Isaiah Simmons, between an offensive lineman, and I know I threw out the question about Derek Brown to Dane just because I think he's a really good value in terms of a playmaker and what he brings to the table. That doesn't mean, once again, that it is a specific need for the Giants, but if you look at Gettleman's track record, I don't think you could also rule it out as well. Well, yeah, look, if you look at track record, it does bother me, and this will be the last thing I say before we sign off and say goodbye here. Well, people say, well, you look at Dave Gettleman, of course you need to pick the offensive tackle. No. Why? He yeah, doesn't I, He doesn't use high draft picks on exactly. offensive tackles. He, he never has. 100%. He, he will use high draft picks on defensive linemen, though. And to your point, that's why I think it lines up. But to me, and this is, I think, why I I'm, don't think that necessarily. You know, I don't think there's going to be a big enough difference between a Derek Brown and an Isaiah Simmons and one of the offensive linemen where, you know, they, look, they don't need a defensive tackle, Lance. They have... Plenty of those No guys. argument there. So yeah. I, I don't think his grade's going to be so high that it overwhelms the, the positional need and value at those two other spots. You know what I mean? And I'm with you there. When you look at also some of the young guys they've recently brought in, Hill, Lawrence, Tomlinson, and Tomlinson was even thrown out as a candidate for an extension. I am with you there, but I'm going more with what you pointed out, track record and logical thinking of a GM. And if you go to Carolina, now granted, since he's joined the Giants, John, he's also taken a running back and he's taken a quarterback. And while McCaffrey was taken in 2017, he didn't take a quarterback, but that was because he had Cam. So, you know, there's only so much you could take away from previous decision-making with a completely different roster and a different team. But I also do not dismiss the fact that Vernon Butler was taken in 2016. And then you look at, 2013, he took defensive linemen in the first and second round. So I'm looking at that logic as a basis to say where he values players. And also, we know he's been on the record of valuing the trenches. And the trenches, to me, goes both ways. It goes on the offensive line and the defensive line. So there's a variety of different ways I think you can look at this. But when you take into consideration need and value, I personally don't think the Giants can go wrong if they take one of the top four offensive linemen. I also don't think they can be wrong if they take an Isaiah Simmons because I think that that would match up well with need and value. And right now, the Giants need a playmaker on defense, I would argue, and they certainly need to beef up the offensive line. So you can make logical arguments to go in either direction as it stands right now. I'm with you. Lance, good stuff, my friend. Absolutely. That's Lance Meadow. I'm John Schmelk. Thanks for being with us on Monday's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We will see you next time on Giants.com, everybody. Adios.